Wise athletes everywhere don't just want better health as a foundation for better athletic performance. We want more life, a longer life filled with the physical activities we love, which requires more than mere wishful thinking to obtain. The hunt for more life is an old story, but now Aura Biomedical is boiling the ocean, searching among one million chemicals and combinations of chemicals lying in plain sight for clues to massive health and life extension. Today in episode 117, Dr. Mitchell Lee of Aura Biomedical gives us non-scientists an update on the Million Molecule Moonshot Project and explains how the Wormbot AI platform can work to find solutions for human beings. And he also explains how you can support this effort as I have done by sponsoring a test of a single drug or drug combination. I sponsored curcumin, so wish me luck. In addition, Dr. Lee and I discussed my question of how to be bold but safe regarding the High Wire Act of using off-label pharmaceuticals and over-the-counter nutritional supplements to get a fast start on my and maybe your personal pursuit of extended health span. This question has been burning my brain as I personally search for a path that avoids the slippery slope of wishful thinking marketing overpromises and the dangers of combining too many powerful chemicals. All right, let's talk to Dr. Lee of Aura Biomedical. Dr. Mitchell Lee, welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast. Great to be back. Well, fantastic. Hey, I can only imagine how busy you are with your million molecule project and now this uh, new thing, this a uh, sponsor a compound program. Very exciting. So Thanks for making some time for us. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. The field continues to move fast, and you know, we continue to find interesting things. I want to actually hear more about that. I have two goals for our chat today. Uh, one is to hear more about this million molecule challenge, how it works, why it matters for people like me interested in improving you know, my health and extending my healthy time in life, how the program is going. You know, I keep hearing that you guys are finding things. Ooh, what can you tell us? Okay. And then the second thing I'd like to get, which is not maybe exactly your wheelhouse because you're not a clinician, but you are a smart dude who's up to his eyeballs in the aging science. And so I, I kind of want to get into some of this question of how can people like me be bold without being stupid as we resort to adding chemicals into our lives, supplement to our diet and our other lifestyle interventions. What do you think? Can we uh, talk about those things? Those sound great. Yeah, absolutely. Right at the cutting edge of what we're doing and how it gets implemented to help people out. Excellent. Just to make sure the audience understands your credentials here, can you tell us how did you come to know so much about the science of aging? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, yeah, I got interested in the biology of aging when I was figuring out what I was going to do for my PhD doctoral work. Um, you know, I was always interested in questions that I didn't realize were questions. Uh. You know, the question of why we age. It just seemed like a natural, weird, you know, just random process. Didn't seem like it had any kind of regulation associated with it. But as scientists were finding out around that time, there is a lot of genetic regulation that establishes how the molecular and cellular changes that actually drive aging manifest. And you can change how quickly or slowly those molecular and cellular changes begin to happen that drive aging. And that leads to extending healthy lifespan. It also leads to uh, fight, fighting all manner of different chronic illnesses and diseases. It's mm. actually 
surprising that targeting aging has such a broad impact on our health and in the context of fighting disease. So as I learned more and more about that, I was hooked. Uh, did my research at the University of Washington, where I looked at connections between cancer biology and the biology of aging. Uh, and then I did some postdoctoral work where I asked how natural genetic variation impacts how well these lifespan extending drugs work. Uh, and now I am at uh, Aura Biomedical. So we're a, a standalone company that's focused on developing the very best small molecules to extend our healthy lifespan. Well, that's great. Um, and you work with some names that are very well known in the space, Dr. Kaberlein and uh, Kennedy. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I did my research with Matt Kaberlein at the University of Washington. We've continued to work closely together. Uh, my postdoc work was with Daniel Promislow, who's a, really a leader in the evolutionary biology of aging and mm -hmm. systems biology of aging. Uh, and yeah, uh, Brian Kennedy, these other sort of, you know, prominent pioneers in the field. Uh, I've been really lucky to, to kind of receive mentorship from them as well. Well, that's great. And they are the two gentlemen that I uh, mentioned. They're both at or somehow associated with Aura Biomedical. Is that right? Yeah, Matt Kaberlein is our board chair. So uh, he's one of the key leaders. He continues to help us out and promote Aura Biomedical. Brian Kennedy's on our founders team slash science advisory board. So he's also a key person that we think about. You know, Brian, uh, he has done a lot of great work thinking about how to get natural products into the hands of people who can, who can benefit. So uh, he's already done a, a, some really interesting clinical studies to move things like uh, alpha ketoglutarate, you know, some of those other kind of natural products forward. Well, good. So tell us about... Let's shift into talking about Aura Biomedical and your Million Molecule Project. Uh, we talked about that a lot in our last episode that we did together earlier this year. And so I wonder if you could just give us a brief for the new members of the audience, you know, what is Aura Biomedical? And then tell us about your Million Molecule Project. How is it going? And what can you tell us about the things that you found? Excellent. Yeah. So the, the promise is small molecules small molecules that can target and change the rate of aging and extend our healthy lifespan. The problem is that for the last 50, 80 years of scientific research, we have not done a very good job of combing through chemical space to find those small molecules. We've found things that show the promise, but we've by no means found the best of the best. And, you know, uh, I kind of liken this, you know, the analogy that I'm starting to favor is uh, kind of mining chemical space. You know, if you think about mining through the ground, looking for precious metals, uh, you want to cover a lot of ground. Uh, right now, over the last 50 years, you know, kind of scientists together have been collectively digging with their hands and, and hand spades to find these interventions. We've built a backhoe. We've <laughs> built something that will comb through chemical space quicker than anybody else on the planet. We can get to and screen through compounds, find the interventions that extend lifespan, figure out how to combine those together to make breakthrough therapeutics. We can do that faster and quicker than anybody else right now. So uh, the million molecule challenge is sort of the goal that has emerged from that. Uh, you know, right now, the largest publicly available database of longevity interventions has a little under 1,100 uh, small molecules within it. That's not to say that all of those molecules extend lifespan. That's just the domain of space in terms of the tests that have been done. 
by screening a million, we're going to uh, surpass that by orders of magnitude. We can do that in a few years where hmm. this has been the collective efforts of decades to get this work done. Hmm. And now people like me can sponsor my favorite chemical. And what is the limit? Is it like uh, FDA approved drugs, grass, generally regarded as safe? What's the set of things that people can choose from in order to sponsor a test? Uh, tell us about that program. Yeah, absolutely. So we've just launched this a few weeks ago. Uh, so what you can do, anybody on the planet can go to our website, orabiomedical.com, go to the store, and then they can pick from a list of compounds that we've made available, and you can sponsor longevity tests. So this is a way to you know, help finance the Million Molecule Challenge. This is also a way to build this world's largest small molecule intervention database. And what's really cool about this project in particular, the sponsored compounds are going into an open access database. So we are going to make this available for the whole world to benefit from. And, you know, the last part of this is, yeah, it's really kind of exciting, innovative citizen science. You know, there's really no other project where anybody off the street can talk to a world leading scientist and say, hey, I want you to do this. Test this thing out. <laughs> test this combination. So uh, we've been really, you know, the more we the more we talk about it and the more we kind of think about what we've created here, it's really kind of neat and revolutionary from a couple different ways. We're, we're excited about it. Uh, but to your point, you know, uh, yeah, what is available to sponsor right now? We have uh, it's the set of FDA approved compounds and we're going to be slowly building in more molecules to that. So uh, natural products is going to be one of the next libraries that we mm -hmm. make available. So anybody can go in, select from their uh, this list of compounds. You pay a, it's a hundred dollars to test one compound. It's two hundred dollars to test a pairwise combination. Mm -hmm. And uh, right now we're getting these orders in. We're going to start up the experiments over the next month. And by around the end of January 2024, we're going to start releasing those results. So that's going to be uh, not just a, a leaderboard. So, you know, what you can do is you can say, you know, I think this is going to be a, a top lifespan extending intervention. And uh, we're going to put, you know, rank order the best interventions that are identified from this project. So you can be the person who proposed the experiment that found this new groundbreaking intervention. Uh, we're also kind of celebrating the international sc scope of it as well. Mm -hmm. Right now, we have sponsorships from over 17 countries, wow. and that's really from just grassroots, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, sponsorship and and promoting, and you know, with the the small microphones and megaphones that we have available, you know, uh, we've already been able to get this global reach. Fantastic! I have to say, I have not been able to affect the selection of a scientific project since I was in high school. So it's really quite exciting that uh, I can participate in this. So thanks for doing that. I mean, what a wonderful idea, really. Whose idea was it? Because it is brilliant. It was just sort of a, a natural thing that came together. So, you know, uh, we were thinking about the scope of what we could accomplish. That led, you know, Matt, Ben, our CTO, and myself to kind of come upon this million molecule challenge. Yeah. We were promoting that for a little while, and then we were thinking how to just grow it. And pretty naturally, this came about to be like, well, what if we let people 
sponsor these things? Is there is there in, interest for that? You know, there's really no precedent for it. So there right. was nothing we could go out to and, and look and see what kind of enthusiasm and interest we could generate. But, you know, as we're out talking about what we do at Aura Biomedical, you always get people who want you to test, you know, different things. You know, I, my emails, you know, I always get emails <laughs> from people randomly. And so this is a way to sort of capitalize on that momentum or really give that momentum, you know, redirected in something where people can get excited and see some, some downstream results from it. I, t- I totally agree. Uh, that makes perfectly good sense. You know, and in some cases people are like complaining, like, well, why aren't you doing this? And why aren't you doing that? It's like, Hey, pony up, man, put your money where your mouth is. You know, you <laughs> think that's right. a good one. Let's do it. Yep. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, we're excited. You know, we are your scientific team at Aura Biomedical. Put us to work. We'll test what you want to test. You you got the money. We got the time. Okay, great. <laughs> well, good. Uh, so let's transition into, you know, a topic that I think, you know, it's just, it's kind of common sense that the question would come up, but I want to give you a chance to talk about it. And that's this, why should people, lay people, think that the results of tests on worms is useful, helpful for learning about longevity and health span in people? Yeah, two ways to think about that. One, just focusing on the biology. The things that break down with aging are highly conserved molecular and cellular features. So those molecular and cellular features are shared from worms all the way to humans, things related to proteostasis, things related to mitochondrial function, how we perceive and respond to nutrients as they're coming into our our organic system. These are things that, you know, that's not a uniquely human problem. That's an animal problem. So this was, you know, these kind of pathways and ways of perceiving this were established and sort of evolutionarily honed hundreds of millions of years ago. So really all animals have these basic molecular and cellular features that change with aging. So that, that's one answer. Okay. The other answer is more functional. If you look at the things that extend mammal lifespan, you know, the best two are dietary restriction and treatment with rapamycin. Mm-hmm. Those are things that work in every organism we've tested it in, mm-hmm. going beyond even animals into fungus, single-celled yeast. They, you can extend their lifespan from dietary restriction and rapamycin treatment. This is the same story that plays out from yeast, single-celled organisms, all the way to humans. So uh, in terms of that conservation of uh, intervention function, we see the same kind of benefit. So worms are actually a great system to comb through this chemical space. Great. Okay. Related to this when you're looking at the effect that the various chemicals has on worms obviously you would be looking for the effect on lifespan but it would seem to me that in fact i've heard that there are ways to improve lifespan that are negative from a quality of life perspective and so is there something of what you guys are doing that could be used in assessing the chemical interventions in terms of not just extending the life, but extending it in a way that would suggest that it would be good for humans too, you know, like they would, are you assessing like movement quality and decision-making or, or any things where you could infer something more than just they stayed alive? 
Yeah, absolutely. No, 100% the case. If there's an intervention that extends your numerical lifespan, but you're in a low quality state through that benefit, then it's not really a benefit. It's not really what we want. Yeah. Uh, at Aura, our system allows us to screen uh, things for lifespan, but also numerous different health measures. We're taking oh, videos of these animal populations throughout their entire lifespan. So we can look at things related to movement, behavior, how they socially interact with each other, uh, and uh, uh, numerous different features. So uh, our CTO, he is developing what we call health span clocks. So these are things that you take a lot of different phenotypes, independent measures, you summarize those together, and they're actually predictive of lifespan. So we have about 16 different features right now related to health and movement and behavior that we track along the lifespan. And we can do some really neat stuff looking at, you know, a given compound. You give them a treatment with it and numerically they could be, you know, oh, about like 70% of the way through their lifespan, but they look like they're, you know, you know, teenagers or young adults in terms of their movement and behavior. We can quantify that very accurately. Hmm. Well, that's great. I guess I'm not surprised. You guys are very thorough. Um, but yes, we totally want things that improve the length of our um, healthy time in life, yes. uh, not just to be uh, you know comatose for <laughs> a lot of years. Well, and um, I, I know that you said that the the, the public program where I could sponsor chemicals is uh, limited, uh, although you're expanding it. But I, I wonder in your general million molecule thing, is is there anything currently or maybe an intention for somebody to try to, you know, duplicate the rapamycin story? Like, is there somebody going to go dig up in the dirt on some other island, um, you know, like the way they found rapamycin on Easter Island? Yeah, so that is a possibility to go out, explore the environment, and basically do, you know, this kind of fundamental drug hunting. Uh, you know, we don't really have to do that also, especially with things like uh, mTOR inhibitors. So once mTOR inhibitors kind of found their way into the clinic and people started to see the efficacy around it, mm -hmm. people started to design a lot of different things that impact that same mechanism. So there are dozens of these mTOR inhibitors that have been developed now, nobody has really systematically went through and asked how they impact lifespan. You know, um, that rapamycin improves healthy lifespan through mTOR inhibition is great, but it's, I don't know, it's very unlikely that that is the best absolute way to target mTOR signaling. Or are there other things that combine with mTOR signaling to get us even a better benefit? So we've done a little bit of that work, and we've actually found uh, it's a dual kinase inhibitor. So it impacts TOR signaling, but it also impacts some other signaling pathways as well. Mm -hmm. And it works twice as well as rapamycin at extending lifespan in the animals that we test. Wow. Yeah, there's, they're, they're out there already, and there just hasn't been anybody to kind of turn over those stones yet. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Glad to hear that. Um, I, um, but it seems to me, I guess, related to this, that mTOR, short for mechanistic target of rapamycin, we didn't even know about it until we found rapamycin and we tried to understand, well, what was it doing? 
<laughs> so what other cellular mechanisms are out there that we don't know anything about? And we won't until we find something that has an effect that we didn't expect. And maybe you don't have to dig in the dirt to go find it. Uh, maybe it is stuff that's run off the shelf. It would seem like you'd have to look at things that you would have no reason to expect there to be a benefit and just see what happens. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, you know, too much of the biology of aging has kind of, uh, well, we've kind of canalized our thought a little bit. We've kind of put blinders on a little bit uh, when we think about things like the hallmarks of aging. You know, there are these kind of 12 fundamental functions that seem to change with aging. Uh, you know, it's great to have that conceptual unity and to yeah. kind of basically, you know, uh, summarize 50 years of research. That's excellent. But what it kind of inadvertently got people to think is that we've solved aging or we've figured out that these, in fact, are the only 12, that there are no other features. And that's incorrect. Yeah, there are other mechanisms out there that we have not begun to uh, understand that influence the aging process. And yeah, the only way to get there is to do this kind of large scale discovery approach where, yeah, just like what you said, you know, instead of looking at the things that we think work, look at the things that you have no idea and just really start combing that unexplored, you know, the the dark matter of chemical space. (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. Good. So you mentioned the hallmarks, and I was thinking about that myself. It would sure be a shame if everything we're studying is somehow related to affecting mTOR. Because if I've already got a way of dealing with that, then you know I think the upside to finding a better way of dealing with that maybe is limited. So are the things that you're testing, are you expecting that they're going to be affecting multiple, more than just mTOR? Yeah, we anticipate them going beyond mTOR, beyond even nutrient signaling as an even broader mechanism. So, you know, things like insulin signaling, AMPK signaling, TOR signaling. You know, if you're in the biology classroom, they treat those as separate, discrete pathways. But really in the cell, they're integrated into one network. Mm. And we've seen that small molecules that change how that network functions are enriched for lifespan extending things. So that's sort of one general category Hmm. of lifespan extending intervention are things that impact the nutrient signaling axis. There are things beyond that. There are things other than that. Or once you've optimized this nutrient signaling axis, what is the next mechanism to then target to get an even bigger benefit? You know, if you think about kind of correcting each issue in sequence, uh, can you get to even greater improvements in lifespan? Right. So it's not just touching on different mechanisms or hallmarks. It's the sequence of how you address them as important as well. It's pretty complicated. Yeah. Yeah. You know, once you've solved one set of issues, you know, what is the next set of issues you would have to deal with? And, you know, that's one way to kind of think about that. And we don't understand the the sequencing of biological aging like that really at all. One dimension of complication comes from the fact that the people who are most interested in the results of this work are people who their bodies are already older. So finding a solution that if you used it once you were 21 years old for the rest of your life, it would dramatically slow your aging. Well, that's cool. My kids can benefit from that, but it's too late for me to do that. I can't unwind time. So that's what makes rapamycin so interesting is that it seems to have a benefit even when you're 
already older. I think people hate to say that it makes you younger, but it improves function. It recovers more youthful function in some ways, which then in turn makes your your immune system work a little better, which in turn maybe makes your rate of aging slow down. Anyway, the key is that it is helpful for a person like me, as opposed to maybe more of a calorie restriction type benefit where you really kind of have to start at the beginning to, to get the benefit. You know, I was wondering if the topic has come up of this approach would seem to be exactly the sort of thing that the FDA would like to have for its grass list. There's this list of things which are generally regarded as safe. And pretty often we find that there's things on there that they're not that safe. And then we got to pull them back off after we, you know, millions of people have been eating it for, you know, tens of years, you know, or longer, like trans fats used to be on there. And then uh, certain flavorings have been on there and have pulled off. And now there's a variety of things. Red dye number three is kind of in the news a lot lately, uh, California banning that, but that's on the list. And so has there been any discussion of maybe using this approach for testing things which are going to get into the food supply or are already in the food supply that people are worried about? Yeah, yeah. No, that that's actually something that we're going to be focusing on as we move forward. One of the main libraries we want to start looking at you know, we've got, you know, the FDA approved compounds, natural products, these other grass compounds are another big domain of that as well. So uh, we're going to be putting that kind of library together so we can start doing some of that analysis. And yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about, you know, these things that, you know, are generally recognized as safe, have people looked at longevity of organisms treated with those things or in uh, being exposed to those things, you know? Yeah because it doesn't outrightly quickly result in pathology seems like it's been, you know, these things have been then added to a list where they're recognized as safe, but we haven't done the longitudinal kind of studies looking at it. So yeah, we might actually refine what we think about as safe and healthy by doing these sort of fundamental tests of aging. I'm glad to hear that. Related to that, because some of the issues that um, I think people worry about re- related to the, this grass list are things which are preservatives that are put into foods so that they're shelf stable and, uh, you know, so processed foods. And the concern is that those chemicals have an effect on our gut microbiome, which more and more people believe is fundamental to our health. So the question would be, can we learn about human gut microbiome effects by studying worm gut microbiome effects? Yeah, to an extent. So they do have a microbiome. Uh, the, the worms that we study, they actually eat bacteria as their primary food source. Mm. So that ends up being, um, you know, through time, their guts start to break down and those bacteria start to kind of outgrow. So you actually get uh, a sepsis kind of uh, pathology in the worms associated with that. Uh, Yeah, and there are really good studies that show some of the lifespan extending benefits of, oh, I forget what small molecule it was, but it actually went through the microbiome. So the the, uh, microbes exposed to the compound upregulated things uh, related to uh, folate synthesis, I want to say. And it was actually having uh, enriched folate in the diet was improving the lifespan of the worms. So you can see these direct readouts on the microbiome uh, with these kind of studies. Yeah, yeah. Acarbos is one that had 
you know, with mice had been shown to be life extending. And, and the thought was that part of that was an effect on the gut microbiome. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that's actually a, a good friend of mine's research. He was pioneering mm-hmm. that. Uh, Dr. Alessandro Bito, he's out of Matt Caberline's lab as well. Oh, nice. uh, yeah. Acarbose, it's something that makes it such that you don't break down the sugars and it itself is sort of a, a long starch looking molecule. And that influences the microbiome composition. So, you know, the one thing that's artificial about the worm model is there's just one type of bacteria in their gut. In a mammal gut or a human gut, you know, thousands, you know, it's a very broad, diverse community of microbes. So when you start changing nutrients and starches and sugars that are in the gut, you're going to start skewing and changing the community composition based on who can most effectively eat and utilize whatever extra nutrient is in there. And so, yeah, Alessandro showed uh, some really interesting work that acarbose wasn't just going through insulin signaling, which is what a lot of people were thinking, but it was actually altering that community composition at the micro uh, microbiome level. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Yeah, thanks for the details there. Acarbose is a very popular supplement I guess it's a pharmaceutical at this point, but uh, still it's a supplement that uh, people are interested in for longevity purposes. Um, But you said one bacteria in the worms. Is that because of the control that they're under in the testing and that they only have one food, which is this single bacterium, but in the wild, they they would have more diversity. Was that what you're saying? That's exactly right. Yep. When they're in the lab, we give them the diet. We set the terms of the diet and the diet is kind of the the easiest microbe that we can culture in in large quantities in a lab. So they end up eating a particular version of E. coli, which if you looked at the microbiomes of these animals in nature, very likely they wouldn't have much E. coli in there. That's a, a more of a, a, a mammal gut bacteria oh. that you see. In the wild, their their microbiome would be highly diverse. Okay. Well, that's interesting. And that makes me um, wonder about other things, because obviously, you know, you're doing a scientific study and you want as few variables changing as possible so that you can understand what the effect is of the one variable that you're trying to change. But in real life, people tend to be living in a real life and they have lots of variability between them because of their environment. And I wonder if there's any testing that you guys are doing or thinking of doing that would be beyond these uh, chemical interventions. I mean, would you be like looking at uh, the type of food and the maybe the amount of food, the temperature, the light spectrum, uh, you know, all of these other things? Yeah, absolutely. You've hit on something fundamental in terms of the challenge of translating things from the lab to humans. You know, even in a mouse study, they don't exercise a lot. They're not exposed to pathogens that might make them, you know, give them a cold or make them sick. You know, they don't have immune challenges. They don't really have to deal with changes in temperature and light. So it really makes it somewhat challenging to do that translation to something that experiences a messy, diverse world like humans out in nature. So uh, that is a big challenge. How we can do those studies, you know, you can, you can start to more closely approximate those. You know, you can 
create a more diverse diet for the animals to feed on. You can look across genetically diverse animals. So, you know, that's another thing. The animals that we have in the lab are all genetically identical to each mm -hmm. other. And so you're missing a big chunk of how natural genetic variation is going to influence these compounds. So, you know, you slowly add in uh, complexity when you're doing these studies as you're getting closer to translating out. Okay. Well, that's good. I guess the last thing that I'm interested in understanding about your project and, and how you guys are adding to the science, there's a huge sequence of events that have to happen to go from the kind of work that you guys are doing to where I can go to the store and buy something. And you're not doing all of it. But I think you are doing more than just the bot tests. Tell us, roughly speaking, what, what is the process of going from you know a finding in your million molecule search to something further along the path of a person should take note and maybe do something about that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it depends on sort of the pathways that we go down. One is a disease-specific pathway. One is an aging-specific pathway. So as we're finding interventions that increase healthy lifespan, uh, one of the first things that we do to translate that going forward is to test it in aged mice. So just like what you were saying is we want to test these interventions in a context where people who are already aged reap the benefits of it. We don't want to, you know, kind of structure things around a, a continuous lifelong treatment of some small molecule. We really want it to be targeted and the dosing window narrow hmm. and it have a good effect. So that's what our next step is, is testing an aged mice. From an aged mouse model, we would then be probably aiming into companion pets. Uh, right hmm. now, the playbook for companion pets is being written uh, by groups like the Dog Aging Project and Loyal and uh, another company called Trivium. Hmm. So they're starting to figure out how to actually look at these lifespan extending compounds and measure aging and longevity itself as the endpoints instead of a more proximal disease state, which is kind of how you have to aim FDA trials right now, at least hmm. for humans. Uh, if we're doing that FDA route, we've got a panel of numerous different disease models in the worms. So find something that extends lifespan, test it across numerous different disease states, find those disease states that are best mitigated by that small molecule intervention, and then move into mammals from there. Awesome. Okay. We're going to transition our conversation now into something a little more personal for me and people like me who are looking for things. But I think that what you just mentioned is sort of a part of that. Because at some point, you don't have to speak to it yet, but get ready. At some point of this process that you're describing, a human being is going to get wind of it and is going to say, I might take some of that myself for some benefit like that worm got or like that mouse got or that dog, or, you know, <laughs> wherever the, the chemical was along that continuum that you were describing. And so I'd be interested in getting your thoughts about that. Okay, so here it is. The second topic is this. And it's something we talked about briefly the last time we were together. And everybody knows that the older a person gets, the closer they get to the end. And so people like me, we start feeling pressure. We want to be proactive. We don't want to wait for the government 
to get around to telling us, yeah, go ahead and take this thing. This is safe and effective for longevity. So people like me, we are moving kind of ahead of the game. We're, you know, we're being bold, let's just say, and maybe we're being too bold, right? There's no guardrails for us, you know, to make sure we don't do something crazy. So, you know, we're like listening to people like you and other people and we're talking amongst ourselves and what are you doing? And, you know, what's your blood work look like when you do that? And, you know, things like that. So it's really a lot of uncharted ground on top of which there's this slippery slope of wishful thinking. The placebo effect is a powerful thing. And so, you know, you spend your 30 cents and you took a pill and you felt better. Well, why did you feel better? I don't know. Well, and I don't actually mind. I think it's great that I, for 30 cents, I can feel better, even if it was all in my mind. I think that's great. What I'm worrying about, this is what I want to get at with your help here, is I worry that, you know, I'm adding this one and that one and that other thing, and I heard that this was good for worms and that was good for mice and this was good for dogs, and each one of them made a promise to me, and it's very hard to know whether those promises individually were true or not. You know, there probably was some truth to it, but nobody can tell me anything about when I added all of those things together. Was that good? Did I, do I get all those benefits added together? Do I get all those benefits multiplied together? Or are some of them offsetting each other now? Or maybe I'm hurting myself. This is the question that I'm uh, interested in talking to you about. And I think maybe the way to start is to talk about that chart that's been floating around the internet for, I don't know, a couple of months now of some work that uh, I think you guys did, or a biomedical, with metformin combined with other chemicals that had sort of an unpredictable effect. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, that study that you're talking about, uh, we tested metformin in combination with uh, not just, you know, any old compounds, but other compounds from the FDA library. You know, metformin is one of the most widely prescribed small molecules on the planet. So the likelihood that somebody will be taking metformin and something else from the FDA compound library is very high. So, you know, what are the effects of two combinations of a drug? Uh, we tested this and it's an Alzheimer's model. So it's kind of an interesting model. It goes through this early onset paralysis that's produced by uh, upregulating one of the main things that goes wrong or accumulates with Alzheimer's. Hmm. And we asked how these compounds interacted. You know, uh, metformin on its own uh, delays this paralysis by about 10 to 15 percent. It's highly reproducible. You can set your watch by that phenotype. Hmm. What we then did was test metformin in combination with a set of different FDA approved compounds just randomly selected from the library. You know, a lot of cases we didn't see an interaction. Some cases we found an, inter, an additive interaction, you know, like if metformin did 10%, the other one did 10%, this one, you know, take them together, you get a 20% decrease, mm-hmm. uh, a delay in paralysis. Other times you would get things like 100% delay in paralysis. It took them twice as long to become paralyzed under these two compound interactions. So uh, mm. a synergistic or multiplicative interaction there. 
But importantly and unpredictably, when you combine two things together also, you get a negative impact. You wash away all the positive benefits of metformin and you actually hasten paralysis. Hmm. We saw that just uh, almost as more, uh, almost as frequently as we saw an additive benefit. We saw that negative benefit. So really unclear and not something that if you, you know, looked at what the mechanisms these drugs were hitting, you know, you, it wouldn't give you any insight. You know, we couldn't have rationally predicted what would have given you a positive benefit or a negative benefit in that study. It's kind of scary. I assume that all you big brains have gotten your heads together to think about why is that the case? Yeah, it's something that if you look at the literature, this is really the cutting edge of discovery right now is doing these pairwise and, you know, three-way, four-way combinations of lifespan extending interventions to see what gives you those benefits and what kind of washes away those benefits. So we are still figuring that out. And it kind of speaks to what I mentioned earlier on about sort of the sequencing of aging. Once you've already changed or altered something, What's the next thing that you want to do? What's the next thing that in that context might actually be deleterious? Or if you've got an intervention that's already tweaking one pathway and you add another thing that further tweaks that pathway, at what point do you start actually getting diminishing returns or even a a negative response? Hmm. Because, you know, like uh, uh, TOR is actually a perfect example of this. You turn down TOR signaling a little bit, you get this benefit. You get a lifespan extending increase. It's highly reproducible. You turn down TOR signaling too much, you'll kill an organism. You know, Mm -hmm. it is actually bad for it actively. So, you know, hitting that Goldilocks range of not too much, not too little is something that you have to do to get the benefit. And we really don't have any good guidance to give people on that yet. Wow. Okay. So on this point of mTOR and hitting it a little, but not too much. Something that I have recently read is that many of the most common supplements are hitting mTOR. And so it would seem like the more different supplements I'm taking, the more I'm hitting on mTOR, which maybe was good up to a point and then bad. And if I'm also taking rapamycin, which is a big hammer for mTOR, I think the odds of me hitting it too much just went way up if I'm taking a lot of different things. Absolutely. And also, you know, managing your diet well, uh, being careful about exercising and exercising well. You know, once you're already, you know, taking care of your diet and you're exercising, how you add in additional small molecules into that, nobody can give you advice on it. We haven't even done good studies in mice to look at exercise mice being given rapamycin or metformin or something like that, you know, let alone do an exercise dietary restriction and then starting to layer on more and more small molecules. You know, you're doing ultimately a large uncontrolled study on yourself. And the problem is, is you don't have a twin or an identical version of you that you're not doing those things to. So you have no idea whether you're getting a, a positive benefit or a, a negative interaction. The only thing that you'll be able to see is if something very bad, very quick happens. Otherwise, you're not going to get a signal out of it. Yeah, right. This is my worry. 
And, you know, like you said, that placebo effect, there is something to be said about psychology and stress and how we can basically create conditions internally that shorten our lifespan. Stress is a, a major thing that shortens lifespan. And, you mm -hmm. know, feeling like you're doing something to promote your health and being proactive about it, the psychological um, position that that affords, I could see that as being beneficial. But if you're already doing things like exercising, dieting, taking care of yourself, not drinking too much, you know, you're you're kind of checking a lot of the boxes that are also the boxes that get checked with these small molecules in terms of the pathways that they hit. Which, again, getting back to the mTOR as an analogy of this type of impact is if I'm doing the lifestyle factors right and not top of which I add exogenous chemicals, now maybe I'm doing too much. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we don't know. And it could be, you know, it could even be as nuanced as, you know, somebody would benefit from it. Somebody else would not benefit from it. And it has to do with very nuanced features of your genome and mm. what kind of genetic background you have. You know, it, it gets so complicated so quickly and there is no cut and dry advice that, you know, that you should do one thing or another thing or not that thing. We're just not even there yet. And, you know, what's so humbling is that we haven't even agreed on what the tests are to start saying whether we've done something right. You know, testing human blood work, looking at the things, you know, what what are the relevant features to measure? to say that we are doing right by taking some small molecule. We're still writing that playbook right now, too. Yeah, it sure would be nice if we had some sort of biological age calculator that, you know, we could plug in our blood work and our physiological function numbers and whatever, and it comes out and says, ah, the thing you just added has lowered your biological rate of aging, and so good job on that. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one thing, uh, just to, to throw in a, a plug for our sister company, uh, OptiSpan, they work with us very closely and that's mm -hmm. exactly what they're doing. So mm -hmm. they are writing the playbook for how to measure healthy aging changes in humans at the clinical level. And so right now they're building in, you know, AI and getting some LLMs together and really doing everything they can to then develop a data set that can then become informative and prescriptive for people going forward who want to maximize their healthy lifespan. Well, I look forward to hearing more about that. As you mentioned, that would really be the answer to figuring this out as to when can you do more and when are you doing too much? And, and so I wonder if just because you're a smart person and in this area, is there anything that you could share, you know, just your personal opinions for that matter on things like um, the relative importance of supplemental chemicals versus lifestyle, the dosing, uh, periodizing, taking things periodically, but not continuously, and the number of different things that a, a person should feel worried about, you know, exceeding t taking at the same time. What can you share? Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, I think I said it last time, you know, I, I wish I knew a secret that I could tell you, but unfortunately I don't. Um, uh, diet, exercise, if you are being proactive about those and maintaining those, you're really doing, I think, probably 80 or 90% of the work right there. 
mm-hmm. you know, continue to work with clinicians. If you do want to try to engage in these small molecules or natural products, do it under the closest medical supervision that you can manage and just be really careful. Listen to your body. You know, if it feels like you don't feel good or you're getting headaches or, uh, you know, you notice that maybe you're starting to get colds more often or you feel sick more often, you know, really take that seriously. You know, listen, listen to your body if you're going to do these things. Work with clinicians and even better, find the clinicians who have an idea and an understanding of geroscience because mm. not every clinician is dialed into this right now. You know, if you went to the majority of clinicians and said, I want to take rapamycin, (laughs) they would look at it and say, no, this is for kidney transplants. You don't want to take an immune suppressant. And you'd have to educate them on, you know, what we've learned about rapamycin and mTOR. So you really got to find the clinicians who are thinking about geroscience in this way and work with them as closely as possible. That's the the best advice I could give. That's probably the right advice, even though... I would much rather you told me the secret that I, I know. Yeah, it's a bummer. Yeah, I wish I could tell you something good. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, on both ends of the spectrum, from discovery, development, all the way to implementation, we are figuring this out right now. And so we need support. We need enthusiasm. We need people to talk about it. And if we're all excited to move this science forward, that's going to be the best chance of getting it into people's hands in a safe, effective manner as quickly as possible. Yep. Good. All right. Well, that's what I wanted to talk about, Dr. Lee. Thank you. Uh, I wonder if uh, there's anything else you wanted to share or any more you wanted to tell us about how we could uh, participate, be uh, co-scientists in your million molecule search. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, go to aurabiomedical.com. You'll see uh, all over the website, there are different directions to go and sponsor the Million Molecule Challenge. You know, you can get involved in this very direct way. You know, um, uh, in, in academic science, they call the people who tell you what to do in terms of experiments, principal investigators. Mm. So you can be the principal investigator. You can put us to work as scientists. Let us do what we do best. And you, you know, uh, uh, we can uh, utilize your imagination to really do some exciting things together. Well, fantastic. So if I sponsor, you know, my favorite chemical, is it now off the list and it was just me sponsoring it? That is how we have it right now. Yeah, it's uh, one person can sponsor one molecule. We might end up building in retests once we have the initial version of the database put together, Mm -hmm. uh, because that's more accurate with how science works. Okay. You know, you don't just do something once. You got to show that it's reproducible and it happens sure, numerous sure. different times. So I'm actually really excited to see the the clustering of data points once people recommend the same intervention multiple times. Yeah, yeah. Well, my guess is that when you get the nutritional supplements added to the list, people will identify with things more closely and and people will be upset that their favorite is off the list, but maybe they'll find their second favorite then. Well, great. Well, Dr. Lee, thank you very much uh, for taking some time on a Sunday. I really appreciate that. You have a great day. Absolutely. Thanks, Joe. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening into my discussion with Dr. Mitchell Lee, CEO of Oro Biomedical. You can find more information about Dr. Lee and Aura Biomedical in the show notes.